The following is a conversation with Stephen Campbell, founder of tinyacquisitions.com, a platform and marketplace where you can buy and sell all kinds of digital projects and digital assets. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Okay, so I consider myself a creative entrepreneur. I could call myself a founder, I guess, you know, or if I was treating what I was doing as a business, like a formal structure, I could call myself a CEO. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think um, CEO, founder really captures the essence of what I try to do. It's more of a maker or being a creative person who happens to use business techniques or who um, had had to found a company to get to the end result. So I would say I'm a creative entrepreneur and what I'm working on now is still tiny acquisitions. It takes up most of my active time. And I wrote a book recently. So I'm in the process of marketing that and selling that, distributing it, getting it into the hands of Jamaicans who um, wanted to read it as well and just getting it out there so I can share a few of my thoughts. And the goal is to really help. I think the, the goal of a lot of pursuits that I eventually take on is to help persons to think differently or to change their mindset or to be an example to show them that hey, there, here is something that you haven't thought about before. Or um, maybe if you go from, from this angle, maybe you get a different result. So I think most of my pursuits are surrounded by that now. Okay, and you have more uh, an engineering background or a process engineer, something like that. Is that correct? Yes, yes, correct. That's what I studied and I practiced for some time as well. I really love process engineering. And I think it, what process engineering does, it, it can be spread across multiple industries. Right. So you find process engineers leaving plants and going to banking and finance. They might go into software, you know, all areas, business as well, because it's that type of field that gives you problem solving skills. But in its, I guess in its purest form, it's about uh, optimizing an industrial process, mm -hmm. right? And that's what we learned in school. Okay. So how, when, when we talk about um, tiny acquisitions, um, or maybe you can explain really quick, uh, what is tiny acquisitions? Um, what are the, the customers? How does it work? Um, and then we can maybe talk a little bit how you actually, yeah, you, as far as I understand it, use primarily no code tools to, to build it or build most of your products as far as I can remember for the, what I heard from you so far. Yeah, so Tiny Acquisitions is just a marketplace where sellers, um, and those sellers being makers, hopefully, and developers can sell their digital assets, uh, whether it's an, a small app, could be a mobile app, a web app, uh, even a digital product like a course, or anything that's digital, a piece of code, and they can get money for that from a buyer 
um, if, and that by being maybe a person who's already in business, having an established business or a maker themselves who needs this small thing or something that they see valuable that can be an addition to their business or they want to take over this thing and bring it to the next level. That was the intention of creating this marketplace to create some sort of exchange between makers because the original problem that I identified in the maker space was that we, us as makers, tend to move from idea to idea and we leave a lot of projects dead when we try to pursue new ideas. So liquidating some of these projects would be to the benefit of moving to that next idea because I realized you can't stop a maker from being a maker. As the maker mindset, they have to jump to a new idea. So maybe mm -hmm. getting some cash from the previous idea would be very helpful in them pursuing the maker mindset. Mm, okay, so basically you took like, okay, the maker is bored with the current project, but instead of just shelving it and collecting dust, put it on the marketplace, maybe there's someone interested in buying it at the current, maybe half finished development state kind of thing. So could be fair could to be say half. so far? Yes, it could be half developed, um, could be fully developed and launched. Mm -hmm. We've seen some of those um, sell as well. And it could be launched making money, but not enough money, or making enough money, but the maker wants to move on to something else. You know, so we kind of try to, it's still very niched, it's still niche, niched down based on pricing, less than $100,000 is the acquisition mm -hmm. uh, window. But there are two categories there, less than $10,000. And that will capture the sellers that I described earlier at greater than $10,000. And $10,000 means the selling price, uh, greater than $10,000, up to $100,000. And these projects would be for those sellers who you know, have established their pro projects but still want an exit and a, right. a, a little higher exit than 10K. Okay. So is it fair to say that it's a little less uh, or that you're less focused on uh, uh, acquisition or um, uh, yeah, merger of, of companies, but rather than projects? So it's more on a project level, meaning maybe a GitHub depository, maybe in an app or code base or... That's email correct. list That's or website correct. or whatever instead of i'm buying a complete company is that fair to say that's fair. that's exactly what it is so we call them tiny projects we don't call them startups or companies okay so it doesn't need to be in a legal structure in an llc or something it could really be a hobby project of a person and uh, turning that into potentially an exit exactly Okay. Okay. Um, from what I heard so far is that you as, or that tiny acquisitions doesn't, um, has a revenue model at the moment, meaning you don't monetize the, the, um, transactions or the, the business that they is do. done on your platform. Basically you connect basically the buyer and the seller and then, um, yeah, they can can do the rest by themselves. Um, is that we do we do monetize? So okay, so then oh, maybe my yeah, information so, is outdated. So we, we started. So maybe the information that you got 
we started that way. Mm -hmm. But maybe four months or, or three months into um, operating Tiny, we monetized. Mm -hmm. So how we monetize is we take a commission from each transaction. Okay. A small commission. And we take that uh, from the seller's uh, mm -hmm. portion. Right. So the buyer right. made a payment and we just take a commission from right. what the seller would, okay. would get. Okay. And um, yeah. So and we also have a subscription model for buyers. So the buyer mm -hmm. gets access to certain metrics and gets to contact the seller by becoming a member of Tiny Acquisitions. And so they pay a membership fee. Oh, okay. And they get access to more details and access to the seller. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. And I, when I when I heard first about it, I was thinking that that's probably the best or the easiest and and reasonable way to to monetize it or to generate um, revenue. So does that mean that you also um, um, kind of monitor or or uh, help them with the complete transaction process? Is the, the money transaction done through you? Do you have an escrow process, maybe something like that? Um, how do, or maybe, maybe you can just, let's say I want to acquis acquisition uh, from you or a project from you that you host or offer on tiny um, acquisition. I would, would buy that. Maybe you can guide me through the different steps. So how would that process for me look like when I want to buy uh, a project and maybe also the the seller side um what are you doing do you just establish in the the connection and then we do all the negotiation the client uh, the buyer and the seller on their own and agree on a price or how is the how is the process um yeah going? okay so uh the first aspect is the listing process mm -hmm. so the seller lists and they identify what category they want to be in, in terms of listing price. Mm -hmm. So if it's less than 10,000 US dollars, they want to list for 10,000 and list, unless they list for free. And once we review that project and approve it, it goes onto the marketplace. If it's over 10,000 US, there's a small fee, a $15 fee where we do a little bit more checks just to ensure that the project, you're asking for more money. So we do a, a little bit more checks to ensure that it's legitimate. Mm -hmm. And then once we review, we approve for the marketplace. So a buyer comes along and they are interested. They have paid the membership fee and they have access to message, send a message to the seller. There is, we have the functionality for them to send a message on platform. The seller receives a message and a notification via email, and they can discuss, you know, what assets they want to exchange, uh, and they have the option to make an offer. The seller accepts the offer that they want based on the, the talking back and forth, and they are funneled into our exchange process. No, it's not a formal escrow because we, we are not. That's not our business but we do facilitate the exchange on platform. And we have uh, another platform that we have built as well, which uh, supports tiny acquisition is our escrow, our exchange platform, and everything happens there. So the buyer uh, 
his the buyer's offer is accepted and the seller generates an invoice, right? Mm -hmm. The buyer makes the payment, the payment comes to us. We hold that those funds until they exchange. Once the buyer has received all the assets, they indicate that, hey, I have received everything. We can go ahead and release the funds and we release the funds to the seller. Buyer okay. transfer, uh, we can do it via Stripe Connect as well because Stripe is what we use to, to, for our payment processing. And ACH, we, can, we have many methods, PayPal as well, and we get the funds to the seller and the transaction is complete after that. Okay. Maybe that ties into my, my next question or the, the next next topic topic, and I'm interested in your um yeah, experience and you and your thoughts on the whole payment um or online payment um yeah infrastructure or, or situation, um especially when we're looking at the Caribbean. So um as a yeah basically a US LLC or a European company uh, you can or most other countries in the world to be honest can without any big problem just open a Stripe account connect it to your bank account and then basically build a platform or a marketplace uh, like tiny acquisitions um for someone in Jamaica that's a really can be a really big problem and a really big hurdle as you probably know um in if i'm interpreting your head uh, nodding correctly that's true so, it's true <laughs> you can it's share true. some yeah some ideas or some experience that you had and maybe some tips for someone in jamaica or in the caribbean in general how to yeah basically get connected to the global payment infrastructure so it's how you set up your payment processing uh, is dependent on the direction you want your business to go in. If you're a local uh, business owner and you want your business to be local and it's registered on the island, in the island of Jamaica, I think you might want to go through the banks. The thing about that, it's going to be very difficult, right? Uh, I think the banks have a lot of prerequisites. You have to even have certain uh, revenue to get access to certain features and so on. And it's very, very difficult for someone who is just starting out with nothing. They have an idea mm -hmm. and they want to build something and they want to collect payment. And the bank is saying, hey, you have to have revenue before we can give you access to that, right. to this. So inherently it's not. Which is a problem when you want to build a business which is primarily online. And which is that. primarily online, yeah. right? So that's yeah. a challenge. But I'm, but I'm saying this with a grain, take, take this with a grain of salt because I, am, I approach things based on what I see the rule that what the rule book says right mm -hmm. so if i see something online or i walk into a, a bank or I walk into a business space and i ask at the front desk what's the process i go with that process maybe there's another process that i don't know about right but we leave that there um how to approach this as a local person it's it's um important to set up a business 
a legal business in the USA, since most of the clients on the internet will come from the US. It might sound biased, but with all the websites that I've ever built, most of the traffic comes from the USA. That's just how it is. Mm -hmm. Especially when you're engaging in business, most of the clients that will pay will come from the USA. So setting up a business in the USA and us being in such close proximity is beneficial to do so, right? Once that legal entity is set up in the USA, can be a LLC, can be a C Corp, S Corp, you can engage online now as this US registered entity. And from there, you can get payment processed through all the providers that give access to, to US-based companies. Yeah, that's usually what I, yeah tell people or recommend someone um, that you usually don't yeah that you're forced to have an llc in the us um, that you can't yeah. avoid that um, or as you said c corp s corp whatever um, legal entity so how would you um just do that in, in in a practical sense would you recommend to use a service like i don't know stripe atlas or some other online service where you can create your llc with bank account and so on or do you have to be there um, in, in person and have a physical address or something regist registered in the US to be able to do so? What was your experience to be able to you know, set the infrastructure up without going into too much detail that is too revealing or uh, probably confidential? Yeah. But what would you recommend or to someone that says, okay, I understand that's the future. I want to go in that route. But uh, again, I need to be connected to the yeah, how do I get an LLC with a bank account in the US or a C Corp? What would you recommend? So Stripe Atlas is pretty good. I would I would recommend them if you think that your business will live on Stripe. But if you want to be a lot more independent, you should get the entity set up outside of Stripe. And then Stripe, you can just put the details into Stripe if you still use Stripe. But there are some good services out there. I mean, if you Google them, that's what I did. I Googled uh, some of these services and I settled on one. You can do that as well. Or if you're in person, you can get that set up. If, for example, you have a relative that lives there and you travel to and from frequently, if they have an address, then, you know, maybe that can be used in some way in, in talking. And I'm not sure, but I'm guessing that if they have an address, that is a route that you may look at to try to engage with the banks or try to engage with legal entities and have them be a, a, a proxy. Because what's very important in setting up a, a, a legal entity in the US is having an address. And some of these third party companies that um, allow you to set up uh, these businesses. They legally provide a virtual address for you, right? So using these companies can work as well. And you have some really good ones out there. I think deciding on which state to set up the business in is something that you need to research because the, the, the tax laws vary from state to state right. and certain 
laws for particular businesses um, vary from state to state. So I think it's a personal responsibility of the business owner to find out which state is the best state for me to register this business in and what, who, who do I talk to? Is it a, a, can I go directly to a lawyer? And that's a, also an option. So for me, when I was setting it up, I had to do some engagement with a local lawyer as well to be a notary, notary public, to notarize some documents for me. Mm -hmm. So there was some work and research that I had to put in to get things set up legally and properly. Yeah, but I think that's absolutely the correct way of doing it. Um, because in my, or what I see um, and heard quite often in the past is that due to the requirement, as you said, that you often need an address in some shape or form in the US, um, that then people not only use the address of a relative, but also the name or something to open a bank account. And then you are really quickly in an area where you can charge with tax fraud or money laundering or something. So um, uh, yeah, I definitely would recommend or make sure that everybody listening or watching um, to make sure that you know what you're doing. And if you don't know what you're doing, then as you did hire an expert, a lawyer or someone that knows the regulations to make sure um, that you are on the safe side of things. Um, but is it fair to say that with, let's say, a thousand US dollar, let's call it start capital, you basically can set up the legal infrastructure, Definitely. paying a lawyer, paying the legal fees, bank fees, whatever, um, so that you basically have an LLC and a bank account and Stripe account connected or something, some other infrastructure, whatever you prefer. Um, is it fair to say or what would be? I would say even, five, even $500. I mean, you could, you could start because, I mean, I'm, I'm approaching this from someone who has an idea and isn't 100% sure if this will work yet. So you want to take a very, very little risk. So even 300 to $500, you can start as simple as Stripe Atlas. I think their fee is maybe $500. I think it's 500 yeah. Yeah, you can start there. And then if the business scales, you, you get a lawyer, you speak to a CPA or uh, someone who has knowledge about the area and then you move on to getting your business set up independent of Stripe. So I think right. it, starting small is important as well. And maybe, maybe I'm mixing something up, but maybe that was how I got actually, um, or you caught my attention. Might that be the case when you posted something about um, how you get uh, the Stripe credit or Stripe cash or basically, so basically for people that oh. don't know that basically when you have a Stripe account and after some time or basically some revenue, some payment process. So basically Stripe want to see, hey, there is some uh, reg regular revenues, regular payments, and then you get a credit line or you qualify for a certain amount of, of loan or credit. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if that was you, but I'm 80% sure. Uh, so yeah, so, and uh, that I think that that was a Twitter post of you um, and that caught my attention that when uh, then I went down the rabbit hole of tiny acquisition and so on. Um, That's very is, interesting. Yeah, which That's I think is a great. Yeah, it's <laughs> very interesting. And uh, yeah, the, the 
Yep, the, the great feature basically, because I think, as you said in that post, is that, um, yeah, it can, it can be really hard, um, uh, yeah, for a Jamaican or a Caribbean in general, uh, startup founder, maker, however you want to call it, um, to get access to, to financing and basically, yeah, with very little effort, um, and very little bureaucracy, you can get a loan or startup financing from a company like Stripe just by proving that you have some revenue. Um, compared to the process that you have to go through a local bank. Um, yeah, that is a big difference as far as I can tell from it, what I'm it hearing. Is, it is. I mean, I think it empowers, the internet empowers the regular person, right? right? It's just a matter of going after the knowledge because it's there. Others are doing it and it's a matter of being industrious mm. and being innovative and pursuing it so the tools are there to help us yeah and i guess um that's probably where you are or let me let me rephrase that i think um that's where the whole no code yeah opportunity or movement or idea or however you want to call it comes into place because I assume as a as a process engineer, or um, at least I'm, I'm seeing some similarities to me here, is I'm very much focused on, okay, what is the problem and what are the tools that I can use to solve that problem? That I'm, I'm way more focused on the outcome than on the actual tools that I'm using. Um, and when I first started to get more into, into tech and, and working with startups and, and tech companies and so on, I was pretty surprised that a lot of the tools that are used or even used on the back end, very standardized tools and has nothing to do with coding or what the normal layman would understand of tech at all, besides something yes. drag and drop and something that you do in your other apps that you use on, as a consumer on a normal basis. Yeah, anyway, of course, there's a little more to it, but very, very simple in compared to the hacker movies that you know where they sit and yes. put down, down some command line stuff or some html code and then you have a website or something that's just not necessarily of course you can do that um yes. but um it's definitely not necessarily so i guess what i want to um want to get to is i think it's most people are not aware of how easy and accessible the tools are as you said to the, to the layman to the end consumer to the for, for a normal person um so maybe you can talk a little bit about that or about your experience as also someone i think you don't have a it or a computer science background you're basically self-taught as far as i can tell um, when it comes to the use of the tools or programming or things of that nature um so what is your opinion or thought on okay how much is actually the the ability or the skill of solving a problem or providing a service or a solution to a marketplace and then using the existing tools to solve that problem compared to what as far as i can tell most developers and most tech people focus on is okay i build or create the next tool or next platform and build that from ground up especially from the background again that we're talking about um yeah Caribbean listener probably um, with little access or maybe little access to finance, maybe little access to education and um, maybe even infrastructure from 
financing to stable internet access and so on so um yeah a long topic so, long-winded um, question but um, yeah i, 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 I think i can to. tackle it i think i can tackle it from the perspective of not focusing too much on no code but saying that because i'm not obsessed with no code i haven't become a love this lover of no code that when i'm 50 years old i'm still talking about no code i'm i'm 29 now <laughs> just for perspective right so i'm not obsessed with it what i'm really obsessed with is the result that i need right mm -hmm. now i have a high school level information technology understanding no i am sharpening those skills right because if i know no code i'm i i would say i'm very good at no code now i could manipulate a website built on bubble very easily but if i start to become comfortable there and say oh this is the future of tech i don't need to learn anything else you know pretty soon the tide is going to shift and i'm going to be left uh, behind so i'm sharpening my skills but generally I have a high school level IT understanding, so I understand simple logic, you know, if, then, else, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I don't think uh, if you understand logic, it would be difficult for you to build something online because the tools are there now that takes your logical understanding and allows you to produce something in real, uh, digitally, not in real life, but digitally. And it can be significant. I think my approach has been more of a business approach. I am running a business, which just happens to be a technology business, which happens to be a software business. I can't hire someone to do this for me, so I must learn it, right? And that kind of thinking, Daniel Vasai is one of the persons I really, is it Vasayo, Vasalio uh, on Twitter is one of the persons who I look up to. Mm -hmm. He's an excellent maker. He's a software engineer himself, but he always talks about uh, living like a cockroach then, you know, doing everything just to survive and, you know, doing what it takes to not return to a nine to five. And, and he always says he's bad for the economy because when he talks about that, you know, persons leave their jobs <laughs> and start going down this path. But he's right. Like one of my motivations is I don't want to go back to a nine to five. If I had to, I, I, I would. I'm not against nine to five, but I keep on doing things that would keep me from going back to that. And one of them so happens to be learning no code and building tiny acquisitions from which I can pay myself a salary every few weeks. And it, it keeps me uh, going. So if that changes, I'll have to do something else. So I'm not hooked particularly on one particular thing. My mindset is to live a lifestyle that or, or the vision of what my life should be. That's really what I want to get at. So if I have to become a farmer, I will become a farmer in the future, um, just to maintain that vision of 
what the outcome should be. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's, well, first of all, I really have to congratulate you on the fact that at least from my perspective, you are one of the very few Jamaicans that call themselves tech entrepreneurs that actually have built a tech business that uses tech uh, that actually has some revenue. And as far as I can tell, clients or customers from all over the world and actually, um, yeah, a product or products, if you um, want to. Um, and I absolutely agree with the fact that um, the tools are, as you said, there and they are more the yeah, there to achieve a business goal or to uh, to achieve um, an outcome. So I think you use bubble a lot. Yeah, is bubble. that is that correct so far? Um, bubble, right. What are what are some tools or some approaches or frameworks that you would recommend to yeah, the other Caribbean or Jamaican makers or entrepreneurs in, in or founders in in general where they can really with some, as you said, basic skills and then first principle thinking and, and logical thinking and problem solving um, skills, using these tools to really build a valuable product. I think um, the, the, if you want to solve a problem, you have to know what the problem is, you know? So for example, tiny acquisition solves a problem or someone who wants to sell something online without which it would be more difficult for them to sell that thing online. Right. So it should be easier for you to sell that thing on tiny acquisitions than it is for you to make a post on Twitter and have it sold, right? So I would have to attract buyers that I can alert when your project comes in. So I need a, an email service, right? Which is one of the fundamental services of our business. If my service doesn't have the ability to send an email, I do not have a business, right? I would so, argue that might be the most valuable part of your business, the email list or the database of your customers. It, it is, it is, it is, and it's valuable. Is probably valued in the in the hundreds of thousands of US right. dollars, and I'm not I'm not um, just putting that out there. It is valued in the hundreds of thousands of US dollars. I mean, if we didn't have that email list, we wouldn't have a business. That's why persons list, right? And that's why buyers come on because persons list, right? So and, and correct me, sorry for interrupting. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're basically building also with tiny acquisitions two lists. You built your buyers list and you built your sellers list. Is that correct so far? Exactly. Meaning you also have them very, yeah. You have different segments of, of audience and of list that you're actually building and can serving in the future. Right. So in in building it out, I would have to think about how do I position our business to attract sellers and how do I position the business to attract buyers? Because marketplaces are not easy. They always talk about the chicken and egg problem of marketplaces. <laughs> right. You know, it's not easy. So I had to decide initially that, well, a buyer wouldn't come to look at a, an empty list of projects. 
So maybe I need a, a, a hundred projects first. Mm-hmm. So I would have to tailor the narrative or the content toward attracting the sellers. So this is a business that allows sellers to. Once we have projects, hey buyers, here's where you can find. And then we, we make right. that kind of messaging. So I think the focusing on the problem, what the problem is, and then thinking next, what tool do I need? So maybe an email uh, service provider could be like a SendGrid, which we use, and then sending out an email to 11,000 people, which we do every week, we use ConvertKit. So before, before I needed to do that, I never needed ConvertKit. But once I had that problem, mm-hmm. I would go after that tool. So in the future, if there's another problem that arises, I, for example, cybersecurity, right? As the marketplace grows, you have bad actors that try to right. uh, short circuit uh, the system and try to get money across from, from one side to the other, um, maybe using a card that's not theirs. So, you know, with that, I would have to say what tool or what approach do I need to have to, to mitigate against that problem? So it's a, a, an approach where you're solving a problem each time. Yeah, does it mean, or is it fair to say that you don't need any coding software development skills to use these tools? Mm, it is fair to say that yeah, you don't need so any, it is fair uh, because you can become so proficient at pinning tools together that you never even need to use a JavaScript mm-hmm. uh, snippet. I, I, I do use JavaScript snippets and I've had to learn how to copy to, and paste. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry. But <laughs> I think maybe what you have to understand though is API calls. Yeah. The, the cor- currently in our dispensation of tech, everything is built with putting API calls together. Right. I mean, right. if you have even one company, tech company, one department has an endpoint for the other department and that's how they fit the company together. Right. So understanding API call maybe is the, 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 the most important thing mm-hmm. and probably the only thing that you need to understand to, to have something successful. Yeah. So that's basically the ability to make the tools talk to each other and interact with each other in layman's yes. terms. So you don't have layman's to here. need the ability to build the tools themselves, but as soon as you know how to use them and how to make, yeah, connect them to each other, I think that's 99% um, of the way um, already there. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about AI, about AI and, and your GPT-3 um, experiences and where the whole thing is going? Or do you want to talk a little bit more about um, how you actually get started with tiny acquisitions? Give you a little bit more what you want to talk about. Uh, I'm not sure I want to talk about GPT-3 um, because it's, it's out there, yes, and it's being used, it's powerful, and I've done it. I've doubled with it and I've sold a, a startup 
a project sorry to a startup uh and yeah it's there but i think a lot of persons might be chasing uh the shiny object thing and they really don't how do i say uh the utility that it provides has already been done it's hmm. it's there already there's there's nothing more to build on top of gpt3 right it, it generates copy it helps you with um the writing tasks and there are very good tools out there right it does what it needs to do already i don't think you could take it and do something new with it right similarly graphic uh generated generative ai we are seeing where persons can generate profile pictures with it and you know avatars and so on and it does what it's supposed to do but that's it you know i i think the conversation needs to go to what next how do we get this technology to help another era in our lives or can we get it to make our lives easier and just maybe that is for the engineers to think about right mm. so i'm i'm not chasing the shiny object anymore i'm more thinking about how can i solve the next problem you know because most of the things that are 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 done out there they're 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 reached they have reached the limits that's what i'm thinking you know okay, and i don't know if i'm wrong yeah okay let me let me push back there a little okay and then and, and uh, share my opinion when i when i understand you correctly you say okay like ai tools like gpt3 and comparable tools in other sectors like graphic and so on um are more or less at their capability limits and everything that goes from there is more a software and more engineering problem like general ai and we can dive about the whole ai philosophy talk uh, later if you want to but mm -hmm. just from a practical use case we are at the limits is that fair your your standpoint summarized roughly yeah on a, on a general note okay, on a general note, that, okay. that using using the endpoints using okay. api endpoints from these companies okay because for i for example and i'm not a very creative person but i can think of a way how just the tools we talked about can and i thought mentioned that a few months ago when i had first access to the tools that they really can put a billion dollar industry out of business for example let's take the tool gpt3 um let's take the a tool that um generates the takes the the, the voice input and turns that into an image we already have the software to also take the voice uh, the input and turn turn that into uh, a video or into um, spoken language meaning in a few years it will be probably someone taking these tools connecting them together and offering a movie as a service thing where you basically just tell the software or tell you can speak that in the microphone or type that in the input is not relevant but basically tell the ai and say hey 
I want to watch a movie with that, I don't know, a Western with that theme and whatever kind of movie type I want to watch. Then the AI takes that input, creates a script out of that, renders the movie for that in photorealistic, uh, uh, and the graphic gets better and better. So that's also just a matter of time, how we get there. Then we really have photorealistic humans and language and so on. And literally every time a user logs on into the Netflix account or whatever the service will be that offers that in the future, you can get a unique movie and, and, and video based on your mood, on your specifications, maybe even based on your taste, on what you watched in the past and all that stuff. And Hollywood is out of the business right now, because why should That's I scary. spend $500 million to produce a movie that an AI can produce in 30 seconds based on an input. Mm. That, that's just my I thoughts guess, that we are maybe I just guess. at the beginning, how we can really understand how we can use the tools. So I think like, because compared to 20 years ago, when the internet was just starting, people also couldn't think about that. We have video conferencing right now for that's basically true. no cost and live streaming. What was a million dollar studio in the past is now also basically free for everybody with a smartphone and an internet connection. So I think that we are probably just at the beginning that smart people take the tools and make really great stuff out of that. That's probably what I want to say. With, with yeah, I think, I think it's becoming, I think we have to lean more towards creativity. I take some of your points. Uh, I think I was talking about where it is now and how makers are interacting with it. Mm -hmm. I think makers might be thinking that they can extract more value out of what is there now in terms of um, from the API calls. Mm -hmm. But I think it's pretty set in stone. And as creative individuals, we can extract you know, more from AI in and of itself, you know, using maybe algorithms, right? So I think would have to dig a bit deeper, but I general I, I definitely agree that it will upset uh, maybe every industry, mm -hmm. right? And I think we will now be forced to just input our creativity, and then it will take all the hard, you know, steps from there. So yeah, I, I, I hear you, and I take it once. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an, an interesting question in the sense of what will be the role of the human in the future and what will be the role of software or AI or algorithms at the end of the day. It's all just different terms for different complexity or different levels of complex software. Um, and, and I agree to the sense that um, the ability of, of problem solving and creativity, as you mentioned, um, are probably the main differentiators because what, what I just see from the um, from the graphic and image creating AIs and so on that's like a human can never create an image that fast so now it's just okay what is the input how sophisticated is someone in using the tool and actually creating right. someone with it is creative with the input and tweaking and then going to the yeah to the borders of the capabilities of the tools and maybe combine new tools together. Um, I think that will be more important in the future, probably it could be wrong than mm -hmm. um, things like the actual coding or engineering 
of software itself because i also think that probably that will be also a job of ai and other software in yeah the future. because i think the whole no code movement right. is basically that like okay i tell the software only what i want okay i want i don't know i design a website and i want the button in the left corner of the website and they don't have to write some code and just take the button put it there say make the button red and that's basically it um, no code is a prophecy right no, i think that no goes a little prophecy. in that direction yeah. yeah yeah it is yeah um what else do i have noted here um yeah what is what are your your future plans with um tiny acquisitions or where do you see the maybe the whole marketplace because what i find or what also but primarily also caught my attention was the fact that with my finance background or banking background i find it found it fascinating that you try to kind of standardize or at least make accessible a market that is by nature very illiquid and very intransparent and, and usually only accessible to way higher volumes of transaction volume or acquisition volume um, than what we're seeing on um, on your platform so what was the idea maybe in the first place and what is your after you faced reality after, after a few years what is your your plan uh today for, for the next well, few years the idea was just to help makers mm -hmm. get these exits the reality um not a lot of makers list that i think a few weeks ago we did an experiment where we started uh uh a discovery uh arm to our mm -hmm. platform where we would find deals for buyers and what really hit me was that there were so many deals that were not on marketplaces so even in our uh ecosystem there are sellers who will never list and their projects are really good mm -hmm. and the funny thing is they do want to sell mm -hmm. if they got the right offer but they'll never list so i think that reality is not something that you can push and really solve by having a marketplace alone, right? There has to be a way to get directly to these persons one-on-one -on -one and say, are you willing to sell? And then that sparks a conversation because just imagine a town and there is a restaurant here, there is a, a supermarket there, and it's, it's all small, small stores right mm -hmm. if the business owner would accept say 20 million dollars for their business they would accept that mm -hmm. but they don't know it that's someone would, would they, buy it yeah okay yeah would mm -hmm. they put an ad in the gleaner or the news newspaper saying mm -hmm. i would accept 20 million dollars for this business but they would accept it if someone came up to them so 
I guess where I'm getting at is um, we are still evolving and we still want to solve the real problem. The, the problem that we're trying to solve is not to build a marketplace. That's not a problem that we're trying to solve. Right. The problem that we're trying to solve is to get sellers to exits and get buyers to acquire businesses, right? And if the marketplace just achieves 30% of that, we have to get the next, let's say, 60% that's attainable, right? Let's say 100% is not attainable. We have to get to that 60% right. and fix the, and solve that problem. So we're still focusing on that problem. And we'll continue to solve that problem until something changes. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say we exit or let's say uh, we pivot. We still try to focus on, 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 on solving that problem. And my, my main goal is the user of the platform, the customer, the creative person that uses the platform to give them the value that they come for. Mm -hmm. So that's the focus. Okay, before we wrap this up, why do you think that people don't list their projects? Because as far as I understood it, they are already signed up on your platform as a potential seller, right? But they don't list the project that they actually have on your platform. So, some of them are not sellers. Some of them are lurkers, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Some persons will be watching the acquisition space and they don't have a problem just continuing with their project. Let's say the project is making 15,000 US a month mm -hmm. and they're, they have a 90% profit margin on that. Well, there's nothing that would encourage me to let it go unless mm -hmm. someone comes and says, I'll give you a million dollars. And well, well, that makes sense. You know, so they, they're just kind of indifferent. And you have to urge them now to, to sell. So, yeah, that's what I think. Hmm. Okay, so is it that they think they can get a right offer, a high enough offer, potentially, or that they feel that, the, that their product at the current stage isn't valued enough or functional enough? Because I would at least, maybe maybe I'm just naive here, but I would at least wanted to know where my project or my product or my company or whatever that I'm potentially thinking about selling, I really want, at least wanted to know the potential selling price, right? Or maybe I'm thinking. <laughs> I, think a good, here. I think a good um, example was the recent sale of Figma. Mm -hmm. Just scaled With down Adobe, to yeah. right, smaller terms. Um, persons posted like original tweets from the founder and says, you know, we are not trying to be Adobe. Mm -hmm. We are here to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. But obviously they got an offer that made right. sense. That they so couldn't the, refuse. That they the couldn't same. refuse. <laughs> so there are some acquisitions that happen, not because the seller is highly motivated to sell, if you had your dream house in the community that you've always wanted to live in, and that's where your children grow up, 
and someone comes up with a life-changing offer. Right, right. Okay. Then I would start to consider that, hey, maybe we could sell. We can go to even a more comfortable place down here and still have some funds uh, to get a 10-year runway, you know. Then it Mm. would make sense, you know. So I think understanding the psychology of what happens with acquisitions as well because we don't know everything and as we are in the business we are learning you know mm-hmm. we start out thinking that we're solving the problem until they realize mm-hmm. you know um 90 of the person here persons here actually don't get a sale are we really solving the problem or are we just happy with having a marketplace and saying that we're solving the problem so up, being obsessed with solving the problem and getting to that solution, I think, pushes the business forward. Yeah, I think you have a cool project there. And I think it's very promising, um, especially, again, considering um, the background where you coming from or working in, rather. I think that's fair to, to say. So um, before we wrap this up, is there anything else you want to, to talk about or to, to mention or where can people contact you or um, yeah, find tiny acquisitions? Maybe you want to plug that. Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, I, I'm mostly on Twitter and LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Stephen Campbell on LinkedIn. Stepo Campbell, S-T-E-P-O, Campbell underscore on Twitter. And I share my thoughts uh, online from time to time. And there are certain things that I have learned and I try to put them out there to help others to learn. Initially, I started putting things out on Twitter as an experiment, but sometimes I'm trying to get my fellow countrymen, persons in the Caribbean, to see the problem that we have in the Caribbean a little bit differently. And so you can look out for me there. I put some of my thoughts in also. Um, I've written a book, Shameless Plug, themakermindset.com. <laughs> you can read some of my thoughts there. And it just points to how to approach uh, the maker journey and you know pitfalls and some things to apply to avoid pitfalls. So you can be successful on the journey. Great. I didn't know that you are also an author. So everybody listening or watching, we will definitely put the links to the book, to the website, to your social media handles um, in the show notes and in this description down there. So um, yeah, that's it so far from my side. Um, Thanks for taking the time. And um, yeah, all the best with tiny acquisitions. And uh, I hope we will see a lot of it uh, in the future. Thank you very much, Simon. And thanks for inviting me and having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and I hope to see you next time.